Join us as we unpack emerging trends and changes in digital transformation with the executives, entrepreneurs, and investors responsible for shaping the future of their industries. In these interviews, you can expect to hear candid conversations about the future of technology and the role it plays at some of the largest organizations in the world. Our hosts are members of the Kunai team, an agency that has been building software products for over 20 years. Today, your host will be Sandeep Kumar Sood. Mark, it's a pleasure to have you on. I've been excited about this conversation for a long time. Uh, so welcome to our podcast. Um, I have a ton of questions I want to ask you. Um, so I'm going to get right into it. Uh, but before I do, can you just give our listeners a quick overview about yourself, uh, what you do, and, uh, and then I'll take them through a bunch of questions after that. <laughs> sure. Well, one, it's great to be here. Uh, Sandeep, I've been a big fan of your talent and the firms with an S uh, that you founded and built, uh, which is incredibly hard to do well, which you've done. Thank you. Um, so I happen to have what I often describe as the most fun job at Visa. And uh, I run our global network. We have a dozen innovation centers around the world, and they're in really good places like Beijing and London and Sao Paulo and San Francisco. And so we can really keep an eye on what's happening in the whole payments and commerce ecosystem everywhere in the world. It's just a super fun job. And I've managed to uh, do that at a few other places, Capital One, uh, BBBA, mm -hmm. the big Spanish bank. And even earlier in my career, I, I, I founded and ran my own software company. So yeah. uh, I'd like to think of myself as a recovering entrepreneur. <laughs> Let's start there, actually. Uh, in 1999, you started the first account aggregation company on the internet, uh, called Max Miles, and, I, and you eventually sold it to American Express. Uh, can you talk a bit about that journey? Yeah. Um, so the short answer is hardest thing I've ever done. I don't think I'll ever do it again. <laughs> Certainly not <laughs> in the way that I did. Uh, I, I go back to Northwestern where I got my MBA, and I often speak and sort of this, I use, I use this counterintuitive approach, which is, hey, the two most overrated things in life or natural childbirth and starting your own company. Like they're all great in theory, but if you make that choice, when you're in the middle of it, you're like, this is hard. And like, why well, I had choice. Why did I choose this option? Mm -hmm. And it's just really tough. Um, so when I finished business school in 1996, it was the sort of the birth of the internet and everyone was uh, going after this at, you know, wild, wild west. And so I turned down offers from BCG and McKinsey. And even though my in-laws thought I was crazy, because uh, I had to start my own company and I raised some, some friends and family money, worked out of my buddy's basement. And for the next three and a half years, basically did nothing but work. And um, we ended up building a really nice business and our client list included American Express and Microsoft and mm -hmm. uh, a, a number of big players. And, matter of fact, and then we got lucky with timing, which by the way is one of the other secrets of entrepreneurship is that you'd rather be uh, lucky than smart. Yeah. And uh, we were acquired by American Express in January of 2000, just before the dot-com crash. Hardest thing I've ever done, but it, it, it teaches you so many things. Like, I think everything I've done since then was because of that experience. Totally. Like, you learn the value of every second of every dollar and the opportunity cost of not making sure all of those things are like put to their highest best use as opposed to, well, we should get together with 15 other people and have a meeting to discuss this again. Yeah, I think that uh, scrappiness and hustle is something you can maybe learn at other places too, um, waiting tables or doing like a, a job like that when you're younger. But there is no better preparation to really value time and money than entrepreneurship. Um, and, you know, you say you had wonderful timing. 
Uh, but I also imagine doing something like account aggregation in 99 without uh, AWS, without APIs that make all this easy, without developers who really understand integration on the internet at all. I imagine from a technical perspective, the timing couldn't have been worse, I guess, which is why it's great, because you started the first one. But can you talk a little bit about just how hard the technical challenge was back then? Well, sure. I mean, look, the the, uh, the protocols for the Internet and the, the capabilities that existed in the late 90s just weren't great, right? And so uh, we basically founded the company on this insight, which, mm-hmm. which started with business travelers. Which was, if you did the research, you found that uh, business travelers on average had um, three airline frequent flyer accounts, four hotel accounts, and two credit cards, one a business one, one a personal one. All of them earned miles and points of some sort. Mm-hmm. And they all valued it, but it was just really hard to manage it yeah. and understand what you had. And so we said, well, gosh, why don't we just build a technology that goes up, logs in as that person, pulls down their account information, pulls it all together into a consolidated statement, and then apply a bunch of intelligence on top of it that tells them how they can get the most and what deals exist and tailor mm-hmm. to the markets where they travel to, which is basically what Mint.com did about 10 years later. Uh, and so uh, we, we built that. And to your point, the tech just was not very robust. Yeah. Uh, I remember we actually used some, uh, uh, we were doing most of it through Internet Explorer, which was like the the one you wanted to use in the late 90s. And we mm-hmm. discovered just a, a number of bugs and, you know, had to work with their technical teams to actually fix those bugs in order for account aggregation to actually work. Mm-hmm. So it took us, you know, we, we ran the business for three and a half years and built it up to uh, $40 million a year of run rate revenue. Yes. So we're super proud of that. But the, the two hard thing, well, the hardest thing in a business is uh, getting the top talent that you need to actually grow it. Uh, and if so, they can figure out like things like the tech challenges. Mm-hmm. And two is uh, getting a client base and nurturing that. Like uh, To sell when you're a young company, as is, is you have probably experienced, is the hardest thing. When I'm at Visa, I can call any company in the world and they're going to return my call. Yep. When you, hey, I'm with a startup called Max Miles. I'm working in my friend's basement in Chicago. <laughs> like Nobody's returning your calls. So you have to have really thick skin. Yeah, that salesmanship, again, is just something you can only learn when you're in that position. Uh, you seem to have a really interesting perspective on where fintech is today, given the Max Miles experience. So like you in the late 90s, I also started a few uh, Internet companies. And, you know, we would have to get our own servers. We would have to figure out things like authentication from the ground up. Uh, installing an SSL certificate was a whole weekend job. Like those kinds of things were so hard. And of course, now if you want to start an internet company, you have an AWS account up and running in about three minutes. Um, and you're pretty much off to the races. The things that would take us two or three months to do are uh, happen within minutes now. And then you have what's happening in fintech now. And obviously the, the plat acquisition is in flight and suddenly. What was really hard three years ago, even with an AWS account, you had to do all the authentication yourself. You had all these challenges. And now suddenly starting a fintech company is exponentially easier because of these infrastructure startups. Um, Are you also finding that a lot of the ideation and experimentation in labs is becoming easier as a result as well? Oh, 100%. But tech has become so democratized that you actually don't have to have any tech jobs to launch a fintech. Uh, it's, it's, there's so many things you just kind of get out of a box and it all just sort of works. Mm-hmm. So 
what how that plays out is there's much more experimentation that can happen out on the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's that part of it's like as a consumer is awesome because right. there's more products and services and capabilities and you can choose the best in class and try things or not try things. Um, so it's like true Darwinism, economic Darwinism happening at really high velocity. Yeah, I think that velocity running, is, That's yeah. right. Yeah, and then the velocity is running an innovation center. Mm-hmm. is you also have access to the, so those same tools. Now, there are some constraints because, you know, when you're working for a one of the 10 biggest market cap companies in the world, that uh, there our entire value proposition rests on the belief that this network that we have that, inter, that interoperates everywhere in the world and just sort of works is always up and it's not going to get hacked and it's super secure. So, of course, we've got you know, constraints, but, uh, you know, we we can use all of the the cloud based tools and even for research tools other things like you just sort of plug in what you need for anything and it just allows you to go way faster totally. not spend your time like you said spending the weekend just trying to get your you know SSL certificate going <laughs> right. uh, so now you've you've either led or started a few labs organizations uh, we shared time at Capital One where you founded the labs organization and now you're leading innovation at Visa. Um, it sometimes takes a lot of soul searching to figure out why a corporate labs organization exists. Um, given that you've done this a couple of times, what do you see as the most effective role for a corporate labs division? Yeah, um, let me answer it a, a different way. So I've been doing this. So one, I'm a bit of a glutton for punishment because I've done this a number <laughs> of times. Uh, yeah. And there, there really aren't a whole lot of people who do it for a career. Right. There are people who plug in for a few years and it's great. You're drinking out of fire hose. You learn new mm-hmm. techniques. You learn to think differently. That's great. We actually use uh, Visa's uh, innovation centers as a place to rotate top talents. So they can learn you know, digital native product management skills and a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to write a book at some point. And the title of the book, you know, forgive me for this. Mm-hmm. Of course, I probably won't use this title is your innovation lab sucks because <laughs> innovation labs or mm-hmm. centers or co-labs, whatever you want to call it. They almost universally suck. Yeah. And it's because of all of, there's a set of cardinal sins that companies impose on these groups. They just, they're just destined for failure. And yeah. I, I could go through those things, but there are a small set of companies where innovation or I, I actually, I prefer never to use the word innovation. It's about growth discovery. And so there are companies that have in their DNA, their corporate DNA and their culture, cultural DNA that says, we have ambition to lead our industry. We have ambition to build the best products and services that meet our customers' needs in the best ways. And when those companies exist, Capital One was one, Visa's another, uh, you can be a part of that ecosystem. Uh, so that really, it's everyone's job at the company, and everyone understands that, to figure out new growth and to work really hard to do that. It just so happens there's a small set of resources that have the privilege of, sp- of being, that's their day job. Yeah. where we get to do that. And yeah, so part of it is just like finding the right company and the right culture that actually values the thing that you do. Yeah. And can, let's let's move a little bit into the day-to-day in a labs division. Um, what is the ideation process that you've developed at Visa? How do you sort of bring this, what is always a large team into the fold and decide um, how you're going to ideate and what ideas you're going to end up working on? Sure. This is one of one of the uh, pro secrets of the groups that work well is um, there's no magic bullet. Mm-hmm. So you know, there's a whole set of techniques of design thinking, human centered design, 
that just if you just follow the methodology, it forces you to make sure you're working on a real consumer pain point or a problem that exists. That's fine. You choose your tool for doing that. The key is this, that most of the, the roadmap of things you should be exploring is, is uh, perhaps obvious, but it's not. It's in that fourth quadrant of the seven, uh, seven habits of highly effective people, which is important, not urgent. Yeah. And so in my experience, if you can align yourself with a business, go around and just be humble. You have two ears and one mouth, so just be quiet and listen a lot mm-hmm. and interview a bunch of key executives who are thoughtful in their business. And uh, they'll all say, well, gosh, you know, I see this thing coming. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know what? We have quarterly numbers to meet. I've got my annual plan. It's not really my budget. I wish I could put more time and energy against that, but I can't. Mm-hmm. And you talk to 10 different executives and eight of them sort of say that same general area. There's your path. And it's up to you then to explore that. So it's probably 70% of the work, in my experience, that the innovation groups should be exploring comes directly from business sponsorship of areas that they they need you to figure out. So when you get closer to it, mm-hmm. all of a sudden you have uh, an informed response to say, here's here's sort of what the answer is that's been tested. And here's the data and the A-B test that prove that that's the case. Yeah, that's a, that's a striking similarity between a consulting company or agency and a labs division, which is fascinating. We're we're always in this position where we want to tell the clients what is going to happen next, what they should be working on. And over and over again, you find out that if you do that, you're missing a critical piece, which is, is there enough consensus and desire within the org to do it? And if there isn't, it frankly doesn't matter if it's the right idea, because you don't have what I like to call corporate product fit, meaning that the corporation has to be ready for the idea. Um, so it's really fascinating to hear that that's a similar model for labs as it is for a company like Kunai. When you're looking for people and you're recruiting for the labs organization, what sets apart an executive where you where you think this person would be good for labs as opposed to a standard product role or some other type of uh, managerial role? Yeah, as I said earlier, like talent is the first thing you really have to curate. Mm-hmm. And make sure you get the right mindset and the right culture for the people who do it. Maybe this is counterintuitive. Maybe it's not. But I, in my 20 plus years of doing this, here's what I found mm-hmm. is that the people who fail are ones who are tracked, right? There's a whole track mm-hmm. thing that happens and mm-hmm. certainly in the U.S., which is you know, work really hard in high school so you can go to the right college. And if you go to the right college, you have to major in the right thing. You do really well. You go to the right internship and then you go to the right business school or graduate school. So you can get the right job. And, like, and I think those people wake up and like they want to be taught to the test. Right. And they wake up in their 30s uh, or perhaps later and they realize that, wait a minute, like this is not what I was created to be. Why did I like follow this path? Yeah. And they're just unhappy. And uh, there are two sets of folks that I found work really well in innovation groups. The first one are failed entrepreneurs. <laughs> right, they already have the DNA of of, mm-hmm. of willing to bet on themselves and take those risks, but because they failed, they have a humility, but they still have all that the stuff we talked about earlier, like the impatience with time, the impatience with money, mm-hmm. to make sure that all those are are trying are focused on building something. So I love to find failed entrepreneurs. Uh, the second one are just interesting, interested people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have people on our team who majored in have master's degrees in anthropology. 
as you know, I, I, you know, I studied philosophy and music. Mm-hmm. Like I actually have no skills on what I do for a living. <laughs> and I, it allows you to just be humble and ask a lot of dumb questions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as long as you're, you're, you're okay with that, I think it, it actually is a, a, it's an advantage to not have functional expertise sometimes. Yeah, I could not agree more. And I love that point about the track because I think when you're on the, the railroad tracks of the standard career, the worst thing that happens is you're always waiting for someone to give you the next paint by numbers type of instructions. Do this, do that, do that. Um, and that's the enemy of any sort of creativity or true uh, uh, spark of ideation. So I think that's really agree well more. Said. Yeah. Um, so you do have to report at the end of the year. We unfortunately, either if we run a consulting company or a labs organization, it's not a pure playground or uh, a place just to do what we want. What is what are the metrics you report back uh, to higher ups at Visa to prove the, the effectiveness of the lab? And what are some of the intangibles which you try to explain, which are sometimes harder to capture quantitatively? Yeah, um, this is this is one of the chapters in the book I'm going to write. Is mm. I am convinced that other than in a few rare places that really do pure R and D, uh, the innovation group is a growth accelerator, mm-hmm. and everything you work on should be geared towards if you find a thing that has a the product market fit or there's a real need and it, the market's ready for it. Uh, you should, that thing should be able to be scaled and in market at scale within 18 months. Mm-hmm. So like this whole, you know, work on horizon three stuff, like throw that out the window. Nobody wants uh-huh. that. Uh, the truth is companies don't want that. No, mm-hmm. um, they need to have really applied stuff. So you need to have an applied agenda. And so we run it just like a funnel where, and we have a, a very clear set of net uh, of metrics that we use across all of our innovation centers around the world. We call it freedom within a framework. Like, they can do things that are unique to their local market, but it's still going to be tracked uh, in the right ways. And so we have a set of metrics at the top around the number of things that we're exploring, the number of client engagements that we have, even the number of uh, clients that we host to sort of talk about things. And as it gets down, then you can start to track you know, what are the ones that we actually explored, which ones became an alpha, which ones became a beta, mm-hmm. uh, and then how many of those actually got taken by the core product organization for global scale. Mm-hmm. And we also and they also have metrics against intellectual property, like how many patents have yeah, we applied right. for? I mean, there's great value in some of that. But mm-hmm. you know, if you do it right, like we have a, a track record at Visa, there's a whole set of products that are now hitting the market that were glimmer in our eye 24 months ago. So, and the, the pandemic actually helped us. So one of the things we, we looked at was we have about 50 million merchants around the world that accept Visa. And like Walmart, it counts as one. So, you know, it's, it's obviously more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we want to figure out how do you add a billion new merchants to the right. network? Well, the answer is like all of these micro merchants around the world and emerging markets, they all have an Android phone and it is often you know, typically Android. Why can't that just be a, a payment device? So we, we right. created this, what we call the Risen kernel in the cloud. And, and now it's called tap to phone. And we launched the pilot in Costa Rica. Lo and behold, all sorts of micro merchants didn't want to handle cash anymore. And customers didn't want to pay with cash anymore because of the pandemic. Huge success. And now, you know, it's now live in 15 markets around the world. And I think it's going to bring in millions and millions of new merchants and new customers into our whole digital payments ecosystem. You can't really have a better marker of success than that. 
And your earlier point about a, a true funnel to production, uh, you said earlier in the interview that innovation is a word you don't like to use. I sometimes feel the same way about the word labs, because for a lot of old school people, labs means uh, people wear, like, with crazy hair, like doing 3D visualizations and that sort of thing. And so it creates this connotation that these are wild and crazy ideas that will never hit the market or they will 10, 20 years from now. And I think that perspective, it's almost as if we have to redefine and not use the word labs or innovation anymore to describe what it is you're doing. That's really great. Um, so I had the opportunity to visit your space last year. And first of all, it's it's gorgeous. It's, it's a stunning uh, visual display, a lot of eye candy. Um, but it also seemed really well designed for in-person collaboration, the way the meeting rooms were set up, the openness of a lot of the spaces. And of course, you no longer get to use it on a daily basis. How has the collaboration process changed as a result of the pandemic? And were there any unexpected positives to uh, to everyone working remotely? Sure. So, yeah, you actually came and saw uh, our innovation center at our corporate headquarters at One Market Street in San Francisco, which is a fantastic facility. And the thing that's nice about that is we have clients from all over the world who come in because it's our headquarters. And so, obviously, we built a pretty nice one. Uh, and it was great that we had the resources to do it and Visa supports it. But uh, a point to make on that was this, and I'm glad you picked this up, was Marshall McLuhan had this famous saying, which is the media is the message. And so if you remember the way we designed the space was it was all experiential. Yeah. So that as, as we could host clients and customers from around the world, they would go walk through a series of experiences just sort of naturally where we could then pause and say, oh, you know, this coffee bar where we were stopping, did you notice that um, you could pay with a QR code? You right. could pay with a tap to phone, you can pay with all these different things. So we could demonstrate the oh, you can pay with a biometric that's tied to your payment credential that's securely stored in the cloud. And so it gave you a natural way for them to experience it and talk about the future of our industry. And it was and we intentionally designed the space to be a place where we could host high volumes of clients and interact with them in a way that was comfortable and effective. And often it was and the other thing was you could walk around and you could see the teams, the agile teams doing their stand-up. And so if you wanted to see the IoT team that was working on connected cars and how soon in your car, your car can pay for things and you go through the drive-through, like there was a car there and the engineer or the designer who was working, I could stand up and say, oh, you know, we, we use this version of Bluetooth because it senses distance and that's really important for drive-throughs and that's why we did it. And so there's a really applied experiential element to how we do it. Now, pandemic hits, mm -hmm. can't do any of that. Um, at least out of the gate. And what we did is we basically created virtual tours. And uh, it, it, I would not have believed this uh, going into it, but it's been far more effective <laughs> in the sense, I think, because clients were forced during the pandemic to rapidly accelerate their digital transformation agenda because it was existential. They now had to understand how to do customer, you know, buy something online and maybe they have to ship it or maybe they a third the customer is going to pick it up there at their location, or a third party is going to come pick it up and deliver it for them, right? Uh, or there's a hundred different iterations. And so we happen to have these digital native skill sets who understood you know, how the best retailers in the world were doing things, and how payments were being secured in the, in this environment. And so the demand went through the roof. Hmm. Uh, so we've been, we've been busier than ever. And with an audience that was hungry for the content and wanted, needed to apply it in rapid order. So in some ways, it was a perfect storm for what we do for a living. That's really cool. 
so Visa seems to be generally bullish about cryptocurrency and the blockchain. What do you think will be the most significant changes to Visa's core business in the coming de decade uh, due to cryptocurrency? Yeah. Uh, so first, the big caveat is um, I am far from Visa's expert on crypto. Uh, so these are Mark James's personal opinion. It was it's interesting. The space was super hot for a while, then it kind of wasn't. If you look at venture investment and other mm -hmm. things, and it, now it's back. Mm -hmm. And Visa has frankly always been pretty bullish on it. Um, we view ourselves as the steward of the whole ecosystem uh, of how money gets moved around the world. And so, of course, like we just we see it as a natural addition to our what we internally we have a strategy which is network of networks. And so any way you want to, you know, any sort of group that wants to move money or pay, that's an individual, it's a government, it's a business, it's whoever, and whoever it wants to go to and on any network, on anyone's rails, you know, using different standards, you know, mm -hmm. there's ACH, there's like ISO standard 222, like all whatever those things are, mm -hmm. um, like we're the facilitator of all of those. Right. And so, you know, crypto like just fits in that as one of the examples. As a matter of fact, we... So the, the blockchain protocol itself has all sorts of applications. Mm -hmm. So we have a product called B2B Connect that we, that's been live in the market for a few years and it allows us to handle business to business payments using the blockchain protocol. Like we don't ever talk about that it's blockchain on the back end, but that's what we, we have. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have a number of recent partnerships or uh, businesses that we've supported like Circle recently that allows you to do cross border payments um, over Ethereum. So mm -hmm. that, I'm just I'm just super bullish on it. Here's yeah. here's the headline that I think uh, I could be wrong about this, but there's like three different versions of digital currencies. Let's just call it the first one are like the the bitcoins that are just sort of that was created for a world uh, where no one really owned it. Like there was a distrust that was like that was the DNA of it. Like the two people don't need to know each other. Mm -hmm. Great, so that sort of thing exists. Then we're just trying to see big entities create their own currencies. So think uh, Facebook and Libra, which is now called Diem. And, you know, they'll, they'll peg it. And so it's, it's sort of set. Uh, and so there's a big there there, I think. And then now, then this is, I think, the biggest of the three, where you have national governments and countries who are saying, we are going to have a digital currency. So China, as you know, has declared that they will be the first country in the world to have a fully functional digital currency. And they ran a pilot a couple of months ago in Shenzhen, the, you know, sort of the Silicon Valley of China. Uh, they said, we're going to allow 50,000 people to use this app. And, uh, and there are 3,000 merchants here in the city. And like, you can go try it. And they had 2 million people apply for it. And the thing was a huge, uh, what they reported was it was a big success. So much so that they're expanding it now. I think they just announced earlier this week that they're now going to do you know, a two orders of magnitude more pilot that will be a corridor between Hong Kong and mainland China. And that's going to happen, I think, within the next month. And so the moment you have these large government entities that say, look, the truth is you probably never touch physical cash. I never touch physical cash. We're already 99% of the way there. All we need is the treasury to have confidence that they could issue currency using you know, these protocols. Mm -hmm. So I think there's, there's a big step change that's getting ready to happen. Yeah, that is, uh, it's really well said. And I think one thing I, I caught in there that uh, really framed it well from Visa's, Visa's perspective for me is that Visa just looks at this as a new set of rails. Whether the rails are ACH, whether the rails are blockchain or the credit card network, 
you want to exist in all, on all of these rails. And so therefore, it's wise to invest um, and figure out when they get to maturity, whether it's through central bank digital currency or a native cryptocurrency, we're not sure yet. So that's really great to hear. Um, so that kind of brings me uh, to two final questions for you. Uh, one thing that strikes me, there are times when I meet someone at a large corporation, whether it's Visa, Capital One, wherever, and you just get this sense, oh, this is a person who is still very curious, still very intellectually curious, still looking at uh, innovation, uh, not to use that word but because you warned me about it, but looking at that as, a, as an exciting foray. Um, and so I wasn't surprised to see that you have an incredibly diverse educational background. First of all, lots of education, but it ranges so widely. There's a philosophy minor. There's a design thinking degree from Stanford, a business ethics degree from uh, that you got in London. And so, you know, we all it's always impressive to see a bunch of abbreviations after someone's name. But the range tells me a lot about your general curiosity I'm just kind of wondering these like business, business ethics, philosophy. Can you talk about how these things have surprisingly actually helped you in your career, even though on face value, they wouldn't? Sure. Again, the, the, I'm the anti-trackist. Um, <laughs> and it certainly worked for me. And at the end, for doing, I think, to make real change in the world, you have to be an integrated thinker. Mm-hmm. In, in a way that's just is open, and so the more you can bring in different functional skills from different places, like, and and then also have the ability to communicate it, like that's that. So much of what's taught in universities today, I would argue, is a trade school, right. and it'll be irrelevant in, in some shorter period of time. What's relevant is the ability to to think and to understand to create the questions that should be asked. And then have the energy and the curiosity to go after solving those problems. So one of the disciplines that I have, which probably drives my team a little nuts, <laughs> is uh, I block large chunks of time. And it, when there's a, a, a problem or a thing or a space that we're looking at, I'll just take a big chunk of time. And I, I've learned a set of techniques that I personally use. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll take a morning. I'll do nothing but like read uh, different blogs or different things on it. Uh, I might call an expert or I'll set up a meeting with someone who's an expert and talk about it. Just uh, ask a bunch of dumb questions. Mm-hmm. And then I'll go for a run and I'll formulate, try and integrate it all in my head while I'm running. And then I go and I try and write a one pager to say, here's, here's, here's what I've learned. And here's, here's how I think this thing plays out and how it applies. And if you force yourself to have that discipline, you find that you'll learn so many things but then end up just like playing out in, in these serendipitous and good ways. That's uh, really well said. And I think that is such a critical thing to do, even though, especially at a, as an executive at a big corporation, it sometimes just seems impossible because there's uh, people clamoring for meetings all the time, but you got to take that time. Uh, so last question for you. Um, this was a surprising thing to me. Both of us, uh, my girlfriend and your wife, are both jazz singers, which uh, I didn't know until this morning. Um, and I know um, I myself am not a, a jazz musician, but you play some jazz piano. Given uh, your your wife's career as a musician and your own dabbling in it, uh, question along the same lines as the last one, how has music uh, inspired you? How has it played a role in the way you think about innovation, if any? 
Yeah. Oh, that's a wonderful question. Obviously, I love music. And as you, like, like in my case, I, I married, uh, well, actually, the joke is, if you're a singer, you need to have a accompanist with you at all times. You might as well just marry one because it's easier <laughs> and cheaper. So I think that's how I ended up, you know, landing my wife. But the, tr- the truth is, there's a couple of things. One is, look, it's been proven that if you have something outside of your day job that activates your brain in a completely different way, like all sorts of good things happen. And so what I find is that if I can come home at the end of a day and I can just sit at the keyboard and play for 15 minutes, it just clears my head and activates my soul in a whole different way. That's just, it's just good for everything. Uh, by the way, but the, the metaphor between jazz music and uh, innovation mm-hmm. is really clear. Like I don't know if you've ever read anything by John Cow. Mm-hmm. Um, who's one of the preeminent sort of thinkers in the innovation space. He was a professor at, at Berkeley. He wrote a book called Jamming, J-A-M-M-I-N-G, where he also is a jazz musician. And he uses the metaphor of how, you know, in jazz, you take a, a, a theme, a song, and then you, you get to riff around and play with it in different ways to find something that's awesome. And that's really what we also do in business. And so it's a really cool metaphor. That's great. Um, and that's a perfect place to uh, end. I, uh, really well said. Uh, Mark, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure to talk to you like this. Oh, this is so fun. It's rare that you get to step back and actually talk about what you do. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. 